This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, February 8th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Republican supermajorities in the state legislature advance bills that could change how Jackson's water system is managed and shrink the authority of its courts. Then a bill on the House calendar could give armed teachers special protections. Plus, History is Lunch returns with the black women of Yalabusha and the power of local histories. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. State lawmakers agree Jackson's water system needs assistance to be fully restored, but disagree on how it should be done. MPB's Kobe Vance reports both chambers debated bills opposed by a majority of Jackson's delegation. Senate Bill 2889 would take authority of Jackson's water system away from the city and place it under a board of supervisors appointed by the mayor, governor, and other lawmakers. Republican Senator David Parker of DeSoto authored the bill. He says his daughter lives in Jackson, and his personal experience while visiting prompted the legislation. I think we're offering a solution based on the recommendations of the receiver and based on the concerns of the citizens and the ratepayers in the district. Democratic Senator John Horn of Jackson spoke against the bill, saying no members of the Jackson delegation nor city officials have requested the change. The receiver just got here. Why don't we give him a chance to do his job? Why are we inserting ourselves in a process three or four weeks after this gentleman gets here to try to essentially usurp his authority? Jackson's water billing system was also being questioned in the House, where Representative Shonda Yates of Jackson presented House Bill 698. To make sure that billing is equitable, in fact, and that billing is based on the amount of water that customers are actually using. Representative Yates says this legislation was authored when a federally appointed water manager announced plans to bill water users based on property value. Representative DeKeither Stamps of Jackson spoke against the bill. I am thoroughly pissed off with the water situation in Jackson and the, and the billing situation in Jackson. But we should not hurt every municipality in the state of Mississippi because of the billing situation in the city of Jackson. Both bills passed their respective chambers despite pushback from the majority of Jackson and Hines County lawmakers. Kobe Vance, MPB News. Jackson's water system isn't the only thing the Republican-controlled Mississippi House wants to reform. Yesterday, the chamber passed a bill to create a new court district in part of the capital city with judges who would be appointed rather than elected. 
Black Democrats pushed back strongly during a nearly five-hour debate. They argued the bill is unconstitutional, stripping away voting rights for many residents in the majority black city. And during floor debate, Democrat and Jackson resident Chris Bell asked a familiar question of bill sponsor Trey Lamar of Senatobia. Why wasn't the Hines County delegation consulted on this legislation? Well, I know it's not yours, but can you tell me why? Um, You know, I I guess I'll just say this. I'm not going to name names, but there are several people who reside inside Hines County that I have spoken with about this legislation. Do they look like me? (laughs) Uh, gentlemen, you don't have to answer that. Yeah, all uh, God's children are unique, and so uh, you right. know we all we all are God's children. Though. Right. So. M- M- agreed. The bill passed seventy-six to thirty-eight, largely along party lines. It will eventually go to the Senate for more work. Coming up, a bill on the House calendar could give armed teachers special protections. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The House of Representatives is considering a bill that would give civil immunity to armed teachers that go through certain training. The School Safety Guardian Act would allow teachers who go through the proper training to carry a concealed weapon on campus. The bill would provide them with protection should they be charged with a crime while using their weapon and shield their identities. Brian McGarity is MDE's director of Safe and Orderly Schools. He tells our Lacey Alexander they were consulted on drafting of the bill. The thought process behind this bill actually started with our School Safety Alliance uh, Task Force, Uh, We meet monthly. Um, We began this journey back uh, around June of last year and um, just over some concerns that uh, we were already seeing numbers come in uh, in terms of possession of weapons on campuses, Um, but then the heightened awareness after Uvalde obviously um, was, was, uh, I guess, the timing of that as well um, really gave us uh, concern as to what other measures could be taken. Um, so we began working with our fellow partners at the Department of Public Safety and uh, through the Office of Homeland Security um, to look at what some other states have done to try to combat this or to particularly take as much preventive measure as possible um, to ensure the safety of not just the students, but obviously the staff as well. Um, and doing that, it kind of come out of our discussion with the School Safety Alliance. We we focused a lot on the word educator, but um, what we later determined was that uh, the name was changed really to affect any staff member. So you didn't necessarily have to be a teacher in a classroom, um, an individual that possessed the potential capability of, of learning and being able to carry a weapon and do it safely with the approval of the local school board could then in, obviously do that as well. So really it applies to all school faculty and employees if they're deemed um, you know, by their school board or superintendent and superintendent 
as someone that's capable of, of they feel like they have confidence in that could um, complete the training successfully and be an asset to the district in doing that. I gotcha. So MDE was consulted before this bill was authored? Yes, ma'am, absolutely. Um, Department of Public Safety, Commissioner Sean Tindall, he was at um, two of the monthly meetings that we have in which that topic was the sole topic of the day in which we discussed um, what that program needs to look like. He was very, uh, he was able to very, you know, provide us some good, um, I guess, feedback and ideas of what some other states have done um, in addition to kind of putting forward the recommendation that an actual strict curriculum be adopted um, so that it's not just this this individual in this district is getting this type of training while this individual in this district is getting another type of training. That way, the, you know, the, the training would be comprehensive or uniform throughout our state. It does say in the bill that the Department of Public Safety would be tasked with um, getting those rules, regulations, and training requirements in consultation with the MDE. Should this bill pass, um, what do you expect those meetings of getting those rules, regulations, and training requirements in place, what do you expect those meetings will look like? Um, we've discussed that uh, very briefly with the Office of Homeland Security. Um, to an extent, that really gets into the piece of more revocation of a certain license, like how we police that in the event, say, an educator is terminated from a district for um, inappropriateness or a code of ethics violation or, or for, for a legitimate reason, um, you know, how that would play a part in that revocation of both their potential educator license if it's a if it's a matter if it's a matter in which the Department of Education has oversight on, as well as that endorsement that they receive to conceal carry um, or enhance conceal carry as a safety guardian on a campus. So um, I, I anticipate meetings will still um, will still confer about those in the future, um, along with um, just looking at the program regimen in general to make sure that all topics are covered. Um, Homeland Security and DPS. Have a, have a good base knowledge as it is with alert training. Alert training, if you're not aware, is training that the SROs must actually complete um, in order to be a certified SRO in our state. So it, it kind of teaches them the practical tactics of being able to navigate through a building when there's just two or three individuals, two or three officers to look for the potential threat. So um, with that, part of that regimen that we've discussed incorporating in the school guardians training would also require them to complete an alert training, which is about a one or two day class in which they get the same basic skills of tactically how to, um, you know, look for an active shooter in a building while they are waiting for first responders to arrive. Brian McGarity is the director of Safe and Orderly Schools with the Mississippi Department of Education. Provisions of the bill raise legal questions, especially regarding language that resembles qualified immunity stipulations. Julian Miller is a senior supervising attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center. He says conditions like anonymity will likely cause some problems. There is not a single reason in the world, legally or from a policy standpoint, that you know they should that information should be kept uh, 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 should be exempt from the Public Records Act. Uh, that is highly, highly problematic. Uh, again, because if you, if you, it's one thing having immunity protection. It's another thing if there is a situation, what happens if you have a situation as to where because the actual weapon is on, you know, school campus and a student accidentally gets access to it. You know, again, protect, shoot, you know, put school shootings aside. If, if there is, you know, the, 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 the 
having a weapon on campus increases the likelihood of some kind of accident related to that weapon, you see what I'm saying, outside of an intentional school shooting. And so there should not be liability protections for, for that. And certainly uh, the identity of, 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 of the guardian should not be of the guardian should not be exempt from the public records act, you know, one. And then also too, I'll make mention. Now I do, I will say this. I think the legislation, the fact that uh, the commissioner, public safety commissioner would establish guidelines for active uh, shooting situations. I think that's fine. I think that that's a good thing to have, you know, established safety guidelines uh, that school districts have put in place in case of an active shooter and things that can be done in that process. I think that's necessary. And I think that's needed uh, to ensure that if, you know, God forbid, a, a, a mass shooting takes place on campus that uh, we can avoid as much loss of life as humanly possible. Uh, uh, I think I think that's important. Uh, but I think these other provisions related to the uh, safe school safety guardians, their immunity, confusing the Public Records Act, uh, and just the fact that they would be able to possess a gun on campus as a mechanism to defend against this, uh, I think are problematic. There's also a little bit of vague language in the bill. Uh, it states that uh, HB 532 would extend qualifying situations to any involving, quote, bodily harm, um, and that the safety school guardian's immunity would only be waived if they, quote, failed to carry out their official duties. Do you think that this, dare I say, vagueness or lack of detail is intentional in the bill if cases like this were to go to court? Yes. So basically, well, first of all, that that language reflects typically the the, the, the standard for qualified immunity for a public official. So, for example, if a, uh, um, you know, you see this a lot in like police officers, right? When, you know, there's a, uh, when a police officer uh, uh, in in constitutional, uh, in Section 1983 constitutional court claims that a police officer, for example, violates the rights of of an individual and usually ends up in some kind of assault or unfortunately, you know, a police killing. Uh, then they're sued in Section uh, 1983 of Constitutional Court Claim. And then, you know, the plaintiff has to overcome qualified immunity uh, 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 of that officer in order for them to continue that claim. So usually that language, uh, um, that language sort of reflects standard language for qualified immunity, which is a tough standard uh, to overcome. Uh, and so, again, that goes back to, you know, having these immunity protections for these school safety guardians uh, to protect them from suit and it being a high legal standard to overcome if, as I said in that scenario, where they may they cause bodily harm because of they were negligent with the weapon or it was, it was you know, they didn't properly conceive them on campus and, you know, unfortunately a child or the wrong person actually got a hold of it and someone had a serious injury or a death. And so that, that, that provision creates the same uh, legal hurdle as the standard qualified immunity is the same in, like, police shootings. Uh, create that same legal hurdle that's difficult to overcome. For people like me who maybe don't 100% understand the legal terminology, what protections would this bill give to these uh, school safety guardians, so-called, that a regular law of self-defense would not provide to them? Well, qualified immunity is protecting you from civil suits. So uh, criminal liability, self-defense is for basically when you have criminal liability. So, you know, obviously someone has pulled the gun on you, you end up shooting them first. And so you can't, the idea is if you're charged with murder or, you know, or or aggravated assault, 
then, you know, I, you would have this defense, you know, that, you know, you obviously have self-defense, so you would have this defense that would be a bar to you facing criminal liability. So this legislation focuses more so on civil liability, that if you're, that if a, a safety guardian, again, accidentally shoots an uh, innocent bystander that's not an active shooter, or again, you know, if they were negligent in how they uh, secured the weapon on, on campus and unfortunately a, um, you know, a child or an innocent person, uh, a school official got shot, then um, the idea is they would be protected from, they would be immune from lawsuits, uh, uh, essentially with this bill, even though they have the exception, in a language exception about uh, if they fail to sort of, you know, act in their official duty or whatever. I mean, that is still... <laughs> The same way qualified immunity works, that's rarely a fine thing. So it's still a legal hurdle that uh, that also provides them protection from civil liability. Julian Miller is a senior supervising attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Coming up, History is Lunch returns with the Black Women of Yellow Busha and the power of local histories. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. <music> Hi, I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Water Valley native Dottie Chapman Reed's book began as a regular column in the North Mississippi Herald newspaper. Now, Outstanding Women of Yellow Busha is more than that. It's a collaboration with faculty and students at the University of Mississippi focused on producing more oral histories. Chapman Reed is presenting her work at History is Lunch today at noon at the two Mississippi museums. She shares her journey with our Michael Guidry. It started as a newspaper column in the North Mississippi Herald, which is the uh, Water Valley uh, newspaper. And uh, my goal was to feature uh, outstanding women who had made a positive contribution to the community. Um, a lot of them are, you know, were school teachers and uh, they worked through various organizations, the churches and all of that. And I encouraged uh, other people to write about other women, about the outstanding black women who had influenced their, their lives uh, as they had influenced my life growing up in, in Mississippi. So the column started in June 2018 and then by October 2018, I was approached by the University of Mississippi um, to do a collaboration, and they provided um, graduate students who interviewed black families in Mississippi, and that that ended up, that was the oral history part, and those interviews are posted on uh, a website at the university, and they interviewed not only just women, but men as well, so that's how the oral history part came in. And they did spoken word presentations in Water Valley and as well as at the university. Then by the time I had done about uh, 45 columns, I was encouraged to compile them. And that's what I compiled them into a book called uh, Outstanding Black Women of Yellow Busha. 
Well, it's fascinating. And how important is really looking at those local histories and, and finding ways to preserve what we know and and get and get the stories from the people that are still there, much like you did with the column? Oh, I, I think it's extremely important, especially for our young people and for our youth to um, read these stories and understand the sacrifices that that people made in these small communities to uh, to allow us to attend, you know, these universities of higher education. And I especially, uh, when I was recruiting for the university, being that Water Valley is only 18 miles from Oxford, I always felt that there needed to be more of a community connection. I felt that the university needed to give more to the surrounding counties. And I much as you know, much progress has been made, and I'm really proud of that. As a matter of fact, um, you know, one of the, the first black cheerleader was from Water Valley, and he was very instrumental in, in getting uh, rid of the rebel flag because he refused to carry it. So there's been so many accomplishments um, during the, the early 70s that young people today don't realize. So I think it's important that we tell tell those stories now while we can and capture them from, um, you know, men and women who are still alive and we can record those stories. And that's what this project is all about, is, is, is learning uh, about those unheralded individuals who made a very made a positive impact on not just the black community, but the white community as well. Uh, one of the articles in my book is actually written by uh, white women who had black maids, and they tell about those experiences. And in a lot of instances, they didn't even know the maids' uh, last names, which is sad, uh, but they loved them, and they helped raise these individuals. So there's stories like that that I'm glad that we've started telling some of them, at least in Yellowbusha County. It, it is Black History Month. A lot of Black History Month programming is uh, is is centered on you know the the world of education, K twelve education, even even um, higher ed to some degree, and, and and there's a lot of rich history here in Mississippi. Uh, there's a lot of rich history um, that 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 features prominent figures. Uh, but what is your message as as someone who? who has such a, a deep devotion to local history, what's your message to people to when it, when it comes to understanding black history, where they are as they kind of observe black history month? Well, I think my message is that uh, there is no history without black history. And we have to make sure we infuse African-American history into American history as it has been recorded already you know, there's a deeper story and deeper meanings, and it's encumbered upon all of us to make sure that history is told and that people understand that history and that it's not buried or nor forgotten. And if someone's sitting in, you know, a place like Yalabusha County or um, LaFleur County or George County, uh, anywhere in Mississippi, what are some ways that someone who has, has been such an advocate for understanding local histories. What are some ways people can go and and try to find the the rich history that that is within their own community? 
Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think, you know, the libraries uh, have some information, the newspapers have some information, the archives have some information, but a lot of it has to be kind of grassroots effort. And that's why, you know, as simple as a newspaper column, we need to start talking to our elders and, and recording some of this, this history before it's, before it's too late and before it's forgotten. Um I'm, there are lots of uh, lots of organizations have historical societies in the town. Uh, you know, I know my my hometown does, and then there's of course the statewide historical society. So we, we need to start teaching it in our schools and gathering groups together to record some of this history. And again, I can't stress uh, the oral history part. You know, a lot of people are fearful of writing, but just as the graduate students have done. Uh, and there are several other outlets where people can record their stories. And it's nothing like hearing stories in, uh, in, in, in a person's own voice. So that, too, is just uh, another tool that's available to us. So thank you for having me, and um, I hope that what I have said has been helpful. All right. Well, Dottie Quite Chapman Reed, author of Outstanding Black Women of Yalabusha County, presenting at History is Lunch by the Department of Archives and History to Mississippi Museums. Uh, thank you so much um, for, for, for sharing a little bit about your your story and, and your historical journey with us. You are certainly welcome, and, and thank you. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.